1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John starts talking again about deception, being aware and of not being deceived. And we spoke about this last time, and it seems to be an overriding theme in John's writing. Deception, being, being aware of deception, and, and love. So in verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's saying, don't believe everything that you hear, because there's a lot of deception out there. And there was a lot of deception in John's day with different doctrines going around. And certainly, there's a lot of deception in our day here. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan hasn't changed his tactics. He's a deceiver, always has been and always will be. But in our day today, it's, it's like he has the advantage of technology. And it just seems that deception is surrounding and it's everywhere. And John's saying, don't believe every spirit. There is a spiritual aspect to everything. Every doctrine, uh, everything that's going on, there's a spirit behind it. Paul would say that behind every idol is a demon. Behind every falsehood is a spirit. Behind every doctrine in the church is a spirit. Whether it's the Holy Spirit for truth or demonic for deception. And, Paul, and John is saying here, be wise. Don't believe everything that you hear. Check it out for yourselves. Test the spirits to see if they are of God. Because there's a lot of deception in this world, and certainly we can see that today. First Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit especially says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And we know that deception is going to increase as we go on further in time. I think it's healthy, especially in the days that we are living in today, because we're living in the information age. There's so much information, so much technology. So we're surrounded by all these talking heads on different political spectrums, uh, religiously, and we just are being bombarded with all these uh, people speaking. And I think it's healthy to have a degree of, of cynicism in these days. You know, not that we discount everything, but we should be a touch cynical about everything that we hear and wonder, is it true? And as John said, to test the spirits, whether or not they're true. And, you know, in the media today, as far as uh, network news, you know who I believe in network news? Nobody. Fox News. You know who I believe on Fox News? Nobody. YouTube. I don't believe anybody. People say, oh, you got to check out this one and that one because they're very smart and they have degrees and they've done studies and you, should, you need to listen to this person. Check them out on YouTube. No, I don't. I don't have to check them out because, first of all, I have the Word of God that is the absolute truth and also... I don't listen. I don't want to even hear it because number one, they're on YouTube, and the other reason is because you say that it's necessary that I do listen to them, and it's not. Um, a little cynicism is healthy, 
I do believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. That's what I believe in. And that's pretty much all I believe in. Apart from that, I'm skeptical about everything that I hear. I learned a new word, credulous. It means willing to believe or trust too readily, especially without proper or adequate evidence. It's the opposite of cynical. And people who are credulous, who are willing to listen and believe and, and just are sort of gullible to believe the things that they hear without testing the spirits, they're easily radicalized. And for a Christian to be radicalized on one spectrum or the other, it quenches the spirit. The spirit is quenched. So John says to test the spirits, what you're hearing, because there's so much falsehood out there. Test the spirits. So how do we test the spirits? And does what is said, written, or preached line up with the word of God? That's how we test the spirits. According to the word of God, we compare it to the word of God to see if it's true. And to do that, we have to know the word of God. We have to spend that time absorbing the word of God and meditating on it and let it sink into our hearts so that we can recognize deception. In Hebrews 6.19 it says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. An anchor of the soul. How we need that today. Something to anchor our souls to the truth. These last days are like a storm moving in. And if we're not anchored to the word of God, we'll be blown away. We'll be deceived. We need to have that quiet place every single day to prayerfully read God's word. If we do that, we won't be deceived. It's almost impossible to be deceived if we're spending that time with the Lord, prayerfully meditating on his word and absorbing what God's word says, letting the spirit minister to us. Another way the spirits can be tested is when we enter into trials. What doctrines do we cling to when we go through hard times? You know, I know people have gone through hard times and they're clinging to false doctrine and their lives have been ruined. If it's a deceiving spirit, that doctrine will evaporate in the middle of a trial and we will be in free fall. If it's sound, biblical doctrine will be sustained. So we test the spirits by the word of God and be wary of the word of men, no matter who they are. Do like Peter says in 1 Peter, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, and we won't be deceived. In Acts 17.10 it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. There were more fair, they were more these were more fair-minded or noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So you have these people in Berea and the apostle Paul comes in and preaches in their synagogue anointed by the Holy Spirit and they listen. They received it readily. They wanted to hear it. But then they went home and they checked it out for themselves. They tested the spirit to see if these things were true. And indeed, many false prophets are out there today, so we need to search the scriptures, to, like to be a Berean, to find out whether these things are true or not. Verse 2, it says, By this you know 
the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So this is the measuring stick to test the spirits. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. It speaks of acknowledging the divinity of Christ, which is the main point, that he came in the flesh. The fact that he came in the flesh speaks that he existed somewhere else before he came to earth. And that form that he existed in was not human. It speaks of the divinity of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when people come knocking on our door telling us that they're Christians, the question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe in his divinity? Do you believe that he is God? Matthew 7.20 says, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not, every, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Another way that people confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is by their works. Do they practice righteousness? Are their lives marked by a desire to obey? Are their lives marked by obedience to the word of God? Are they confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh by their works? Verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Those who don't believe what the scriptures say about the Son of God and their works show it are not of God. 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John continues and he says, And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist can be summed up in one sentence. The Bible isn't true. We constantly talk about this in Sunday school with the kids, that the biggest, the absolute truth is God's word, the Bible. The biggest lie in the world, Satan's biggest lie, is that the Bible isn't true. This is the biggest lie in the universe. And to let the kids know that they're going to be hearing this lie every day of their lives, more and more. And that lie is going to be louder and louder as time goes on. And it comes in many different forms. Entertainment, through social media, through anything, basically anything that we see or hear, that lie can be spread that the Bible isn't true. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we needn't fear, we needn't panic, we needn't, needn't be anxious. The Bible says be anxious for nothing, which is quite a heavy statement. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Don't be anxious for anything, because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And who, who is in us? The creator of the universe. The creator of the physical and spiritual universe is in us. The Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So how do I know, how do we know that God is really for us? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, 
For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So how do I know that I'm included in that? You just have to look at the cross, look at Calvary. 1 John 2.2 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We are included in that, that his thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace and not evil, to give us a future and a hope. Matthew 16.13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Greater is he who is in us. God has the power to break through our blindness, our being dead in trespasses and sin, our being deceived by the ruler of this world. He has the power to break through and reveal what he revealed to Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To know that. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is able, we sing that song, that he is able. He is able to shine that light, the light of absolute truth into our hearts. He is greater than he who is in the world. He is able to enlighten and save us from the wages of sin. He alone is able to save. The Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He is able to keep us with him, anchored in the truth from the wind of deception. He's able to save, he's able to keep us, he's able to bring us home. And deception is going to be strong. Second Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. God is able to keep us in the truth. John 10.27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We need to have that security, to know that security that we are in Christ, that we are in God's hand, and no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. He's able to bring us home. 
Philippians 1.6 says, being, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, that, that's a promise. It's going to happen. We wonder, you know, am I ever going to make it? We look at ourselves and our failings and our shortcomings, and we think how far away we are. But Paul says, confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have overcome because of Jesus, who is on the throne, ruling the entire universe. John 16.33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 1 John 5.4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Darkness will never overpower light. Our faith in him, our faith in someone outside of ourselves, is what causes us to overcome the world. Our faith in the one who is greater than he who is in the world. John 1.5 And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Matthew 8.25 says, Then his disciples came, or the account where in Matthew where Jesus and his apostles went out on the boat and the storm came up. It says, Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. You know, and sometimes we can get this hearted like that. Lord, we're perishing. We're surrounded by this deception, and the world is going to pot, and just the craziness is just growing in this world. Lord, save us. We're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And that's why we become fearful, and that's why we become anxious, because we have little faith. We, we lose faith that God is going to take care of us, that he's promised that he's going to keep us. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. When we trust in Jesus, just trust in him, and there's a great calm that comes over us. The peace of God, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, the Bible says. And there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. You know, why are we so afraid? He is the ruler of the universe. Evil has to bow down to Christ. When that demon-possessed man, when they went to the shore on the other side, and that demon-possessed man came running down the hill, screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm sure the other apostles jumped back in the boat, but I'm sure Jesus stood there, and this man ran up to Jesus and says he bowed down to him. And you wonder, why would this evil, this man who's so full of all these demons, this legion of demons, why would he bow down to Jesus? Because he had to. Evil bows down to Christ. They are of the world, therefore they, verse 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know, why does anyone listen to anyone? 
you know, one reason is that a person has credentials, they're considered an expert in a certain field, so people listen to them because this world has given them the credentials. Or they're saying things that the listener wants to hear, which is kind of rampant in the church today. Second Timothy at 4.3 says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, teachers who say what people want to hear. Because people listen to others because they're saying things that make sense. It sits well with their minds and, it, and people can comprehend what they're saying. John 1.5 says, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Chuck Missler used to say, the 66 books which we call the Bible constitute a highly integrated message system. What makes this so astonishing is the fact that they were penned by more than 40 different people over a period of several thousand years. Yet we know, yet we now discover that virtually every detail of the Bible text evidences a highly skillful integrated design from cover to cover. In fact, every word, every place, name, every detail was apparently placed there in the original deliberately as part of an overall intricate plan. What is even more astounding is that it can be demonstrated that the origin of this intricate design is from outside of our dimension of space and time. I miss Chuck Missler. And we who know the word of God, we who believe, we know this to be true. We know that forever, Lord, your word is settled in the heavens, as it says in Psalms. And we wonder why people can't see this. We share spiritual truth with people, and they just can't get They can't receive it. We tell people about the rapture and about end times and about prophecy. And not only can they not receive it, but they think we're insane. That's why we preach Christ and him crucified. Because that's the only thing that will get to people. That is the only thing that will reveal the truth to people. We wonder why they can't understand it, why they can't say, why they can't see what we see. And they can't, not until by the grace of God, they are able to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then the door is open to the word of God, to the truth. The reason that we believe that the Bible is the word of God is because we believe in Jesus Christ. Then John goes on to talk about love, and love is a major theme in John's writings. He's constantly talking about love, the love of God and the love that we should have for each other. And, you know, and some people say, you know, sometimes the church talks too much about love. There's other things. Well, there really isn't. Love is the most important thing there is, the love of God and our love for other people. John says, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, it's not easy to expound on these verses because they're so plain and, and simple, and they just state what, what is true. And there's nothing more important than this love that John is talking about. The meaning is very clear. God doesn't just love. He is love. And we are to love one another. The two greatest commandments, they came up to Jesus and said, what are the, all the commandments, all the laws, all the ordinances, what are the two greatest? And he said, love, the first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So that love is the greatest of the commandments. There is nothing more essential for the Christian than to know the love of God. And that's something in Sunday school with the kids that we are constantly praying for, that they know the love of God. Nothing more important. Ephesians 3.16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. You know, and what is the glory and might of God? It's agape love demonstrated at Calvary with the Son of God hanging on a cross. 17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and weight, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Nothing more important than to know, you know, the kids sing that song, we sing that song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And it can become kind of common to us and we and we don't think much about it, but it is totally essential that we know, most important thing, you know how much God loves you. Know that you are loved. And it's the essence of our witness to the world. Our witness is definitely in what we say to people. But what we are, but what's more important is what we are. Because what we are determines what we do especially in these days of deep division. When the world sees a group of people, all different, different races, different nationalities, young, old, male, female, when they see a group of people all different and their only desire is to do the will of God, to do good for one another unconditionally, that is the witness to the world. That's the light on a hill. Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples, not by what you say, but by how you love one another. It should be a contrast to the world that should be shining and illuminating. A people who are one in Christ. People, the world should see it and not be able to comprehend it. So the question is, how is the church doing? Are we being that witness to the world? What is hampering that witness to the world? Our politics? Our, what, what, is, what is hampering, dulling that light to the world? Is the miracle of the love of God, of Christ in us, shining in this present darkness? There's a verse concerning the last days in Matthew 24:12. It says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is living like the law and authority of God doesn't exist. It's living without the fear of God. 
no fear of God. And lawlessness can infect the church due to false doctrine, due to lack of adherence to the word of God. And lawlessness can affect the church due to the decline in our culture and our society that's fallen, fallen to the spirit of Antichrist. And we look around us and we see the lawlessness all around us and our hearts can become cold and hard. So how do we endure to the end? Because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure to the end? Jude tells us, he says, keep, yourself in the keep yourselves in the love of God. That's how we endure. How do we keep ourselves in someone's love? By not doing anything that would cause them to stop loving us. But that's not the way it is with God. We keep ourselves in the love of God by growing in the knowledge of his love and depending on it. Believing with all our hearts that it will always be there and will never fade. Beloved, let us love. That ancient Greek sentence in the original language it should be translated, those who are loved, let us love. Because we are loved, we love other people. We're not commanded to love one another to earn or become worthy of God's love. We love one another because we are loved by God and have received that love and live in the light of it. And we are able to, Christians are not just forgiven, they are born anew by God's spirit and the fruit of that spirit is love. So we are able to love with that agape love, with that unconditional love. Agape love is not a feeling, it's an action. An action for good towards those for whom we may not have any warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus said in Luke, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. He said, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. God, God is merciful to, to the good and the evil. That agape love, that is unconditional, it doesn't expect anything back. It just loves. God is love. You know, I ask the kids in Sunday school, why does God, love, does God love you? And they all say, yes. Why does God love you? Is it because you're cute? And they know they're cute. But they know better than to say yes. So they say, no, not because we're cute. Is it because you're smart? Because you're so smart? No, not because we're so smart. Is it because you're so good? Does God love you because of that? No. Then why does God love you? And there's always at least one kid in the class who raises their hand and just says, he just does. He just does. And that's as good an answer as any. He just does. That agape love. And will our love ever be an adequate measure in view of his love for us? Probably not while we're in these tents, but God knows our frame. And Jesus died to sponge our failings. And he did it before we were born. And he didn't even ask our permission to die for our sins. He just did it. You know, why does God love you? He just does. He just does. And we can depend on it.
Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love isn't just what God does, it's who he is. It means we can rest and we can have peace because he just does. He loves us unconditionally. I love that word, unconditionally. Love is the essential aspect of his character and colors every aspect of his nature, but it does not eliminate his holiness, his righteousness, or his perfect justice. We know that the holiness of God is loving, the righteousness of God is loving, and the justice of God is loving. Everything God does, in one way or another, expresses his love. Everything that God does expresses his love. From flooding the earth and killing every living thing to dying on the cross on Calvary, everything God does expresses his love. 1 John 2.4 says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 9, this is, this, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is how God manifested and showed us his love. They sent his Son, and we can live through him. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, than, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We have been justified by his blood and that word justified, it's, just, it's even more than forgiven. It's being so cleansed and so purified by the sacrifice of Jesus that it's like we have never done the sin justified Paul goes on he says for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life I love that verse if when we were enemies we were reconciled by the death of his son if God does that for his enemies what will he be willing to do for his children through the death of his son we have been made his children if he dies, if he sends his son to die on a cross for his enemies, what will he do for those that he loves, his children? First John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appropriate propitiation for our sins. I like that song that we sing, You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. People talk about identity politics. That's our identity. You know, I am loved by you. That's who I am. It's who I am. Nothing more, nothing less. I am just loved by God. That's our identity. Not male or female, not young or old, black or white. It's that I'm loved by you. It's who I am. That's our identity. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The debt is paid, and the price paid is incomprehensibly high. He is the appropriation, a sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. It says, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
People say, how can a loving God send people to hell? A righteous God can. A wrathful God can. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The rejection of Christ, to reject Christ, to reject what took place on Calvary, justifies the existence of hell. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You know, you hear people say, I just can't love that person. That's not true. We have the Spirit of God, who is love, and the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Believers are the only ones on earth who are able to love in truth. If we don't love, it's because we don't know God and are choosing our own way. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That light is love. It's that agape love, knowing the love of God and loving other people. 1 John 2.10 says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Just finish with these verses. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And obedience to God, to fulfill the obedience of God, love, loving people, doing no harm to people, doing good, unconditional love is the fulfillment of the law. And in verse 11 in Romans it says, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. And we can certainly say that today. Our salvation is definitely nearer than when we first believed. Nothing else has to happen before the rapture of the church. In the past, something always had to happen before the end times came. I was reading a thing where, about this group of people who were teaching that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist during World War II. And you can see how they could get that with all the symbolism and everything he was doing. But then there were other people we're preaching, no, that can't be true because there are things that haven't happened yet before the Antichrist is revealed, before the end comes. Well, we're living in a time now where nothing has to happen yet before the end comes. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, of love. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie, and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, but in, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we, your love, Lord, is greater than anything, Lord, and we just thank you for it and pray that we would grow in the knowledge of your love, Lord, and that you would fill us with your spirit, that Lord, this week and every week, Lord, to our family, to our children, 
to our neighbors, to the people we work with, that they would see that light, Lord, we pray. We pray for that miracle, Lord, that they would know and see you in us, that they would experience your love, your unconditional love, that they would see the joy that we have because we are secure in you, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts and use us, Lord, in these last days. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your love for us that never ends and never will fade away. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.